another episode of Market Like a Badass. Today we have another special guest episode and we're going to talk about privacy and security concerns that impact business owners. I have a very badass guest who knows a lot about protecting a brand. His name is Dennis Damon. I will do a quick introduction to Dennis to our audience so I can brag about our special guest for a little bit and then you all will hear from him directly. Dennis is a privacy expert who has more than 25 years of experience combating spam, security and privacy issues, data governance issues, and improving email delivery. Currently, he is Morrow Post's chief privacy officer. He was also appointed by the Department of Homeland Security to the Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. He is also a longstanding member of several boards and advisory committees within the advertising and messaging industry, and he sits on several advisory boards for internet companies and is a partner, mentor, and frequent investor in startups. Welcome, Dennis. Yay! Well, thank you. I can't believe I'm here. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, you have a great resume, but I want the audience to hear directly from you. Tell (laughs) us a little bit about yourself. You've obviously been established in the privacy industry for a while now, so tell us more about who you are. Almost a little too long, actually. uh, (laughs) I've been, you know, as you said, I've been doing this for about 25 years, and and I I kind of blame my father, actually, for for the change in, in, in path, because you know, I was originally in law enforcement. And when I say law enforcement, I'm talking like law enforcement, you know, federal, uh, local sort of stuff, right? And computers at the time was actually a hobby of mine. And so to age myself as far back as I can, I started on the internet back in the days of bulletin board systems and modems, right? And computers. This is before, obviously, high speed and internet and DSL and cable. But as I was going back to school to do my master's, my father calls me one day as I was doing some consulting for AT&T back in the day, I was contracting for those that are listening who remember the idea of token ring, which became Ethernet and something called OS2, OS2 warp to Windows. That's literally how far back I go in where the Internet has come, if you will. And uh, dad said, hey, you know, there's this thing called the Internet. AT&T wants to launch it, but they need somebody who understands computers, but also the law. I thought, oh, I'll take a look at the job and see. And, and, and next thing I know, I became one of the first of many, actually, over the years, you know, the ISP abuse person, right? I was the one that was stopping marketers' emails, right, for, from spamming and whatnot. So I was not the, the most liked person back then. But over the years, you know, did that for AT&T and Verizon uh, and even was actually at a little, probably little-known company now called Mail Abuse Prevention Systems, which was the first email blacklist ever that we created. But then quickly realized that all the things that I was teaching marketers about in not spamming and how to send better email to the clients that we had at the ISPs, realized uh, we could probably go over to the other side of the fence and start teaching all of that. And I made the jump over to a company at the time. It was called Strongmail. Very, at the time, it was a very small company that ended up uh, selling to a company, a company called Celligent that some of you probably uh, know and remember. 
but help them build the first sort of email best practices and technology around how to send better email for uh, for people. And uh, in doing that, got highly involved in the coalition space. Uh, some of you guys have, have participated in some of these over the years, whether it's been the what used to be the Data and Marketing Association, now the ANA, the uh, EEC or the Email Experience Council, another one called MOG, which is the Messaging Anti-Abuse Working Group, all these acronyms, right? And that's what really got me heavily more involved in the regulation space around privacy and compliance. And I began to self-teach and tell marketers, hey, don't, also don't forget about anti-spam, but you also need to worry about privacy laws and you know, what's the best thing to do? And that just morphed into what we have today. So left StrongMail, went to a company called Eloqua that was a very successful and who coined the term and process of marketing automation. I had a really fun time there learning about, you know, consumer intelligence and the things that you should and should not be doing and tracking people, right, through websites and the email. And then that also then uh, brought me to you, actually, where after we sold, uh, actually, we took the company, we took Eloqua public, let me think here, August of 2012, and then Uncle Larry or Larry Ellison at Oracle bought the company from us in December of that year. I had planned on, uh, I stayed about a year with Oracle, watching them and helping them build their uh, marketing uh, cloud that they had. And then, yeah, that brought me over to you where I, as a longtime advisor to Return Path, you know, they needed somebody to come in and be their chief privacy officer there as well. And so I came on board and spent five years with folks like you and uh, you know, getting to travel around with our clients, right? Yep. You know, I, I think the last time you and I saw each other, we were at the LA Dodgers. We were in in, in right. one of the suites, throwing a, a wonderful party for all of our clients and and, and having a, a great time in LA. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a really fun time actually for 25 years. I, yeah, I I know that sounds very interesting. You've been at a lot of really uh, great companies. I mean, I, Eloqua was new to me. I didn't realize you worked there, and what a great company. So. You've done just amazing stuff over the years, and I'm excited for some of the knowledge you're going to drop on the audience today. I hope that'll scare them, but but we'll get there. We'll get there. That's right. <laughs> but before we move on to talking about some of the more serious privacy concerns, our audience has to hear about your involvement championing women by supporting pioneers in skirts. So can you tell our audience about pioneers in skirts, what it is, the impact, and and sure. really how can they learn more about it? Yeah, actually, uh, Pioneer Skirts is probably one of the more proud moments of, uh, you know, not only just professional, but personal, I think, for me. So Pioneer Skirts, it, it's a social impact film or documentary that aims to advocate the conversation about women in the marketplace or the workplace, I should say. Um, you know, it's it, it's a really engaging examination of, of gender parity, if you will, in the workplace from the perspective of a female filmmaker who was really kind of frustrated with her own problems in the film industry. Uh, you know, she wasn't finding many answers within her own profession that was really male-driven. And so she decided to expand her search and include other industries and society in general. So, it, it you know, it's, a, it's an inspiring portrait, if you will, of, of, you know, perseverance and determination. And the young lady is the director, Ashley Marie, who, again, shares her own story. But she also follows uh, the story of, of several th of like robotic uh, girls or sorry, a, a, a girl, a team of uh, robotic people. And three of them were girls uh, and also their fathers. Right. And to kind of understand as well, sort of what other people like a young mother who was pregnant and also in the workplace, but not knowing whether or not she should tell people about her pregnancy. Um, so she went through and, and basically talked to a lot of pioneering women and uh, interviewed a lot of topic experts you know, over time. 
I became attached to the project sort of by accident and through a friend of mine, Len Schneider, who's over at uh, Sengrid Twilio. But Len had saw them speak at an event, and Len and I were the current, I was the chair, he was the co-chair of the Email Experience Council. And we decided that instead of having a keynote about marketing, which gets really boring over time, we wanted to change it up and stir the pot, as they say. So we brought them in and gave them a chance to talk about the film and to even show clips of the film to the folks that were in the room. And it was a complete game changer for us. It was something that people had never thought of. I mean, for me as well, it was too, because as I watched the film, I realized this as, as an example that when we are raised as children, right? So as a girl, right? You know, a girl would fall and you'd go and you go, oh, it's okay, sweetheart. And, and you would treat her, you know, very softly, but then you would, a boy would fall and you're like, get up, be a man, don't cry, right? And that, and that parody right. really begins at a very early age, you know, pink for girls, G.I. Joe for boys and that sort of thing. And it was great. It was great for me as a father of, of uh, now 20 year old twin boys now that I was able to ensure that they understood their role in making sure that uh, that at they not, you know, help women in the sense of like, here, let me lift you up and just do it because you're a woman. But to really remove that that layer of separation, right, between everybody, and to remove that thinking from people's mindsets, if you will, and so we did that over yes. the last you know yeah. couple of years. We took them to even another organization called MOG, right, the Messaging Anti Abuse Working Group, which is, I mean, both men and women, but you know, the security realm has always been very male dominated. And through all of this, we we raised a lot of money. Return Path actually helped us out. Matt Blumberg, the founder, co-founder and CEO. Uh, helped us raise, I think uh, we ended up doing like $25,000, through Return Path. Len and I and uh, those that are you know, in the film, including you know, Ashley's mom as well, Leanne, we helped them raise a ton of money to finish the film. They got introduced to people you know, uh, just from all over the world, if you will, about the film. And then even George Lucas reached out actually and said, hey, uh, we want to wow. we, we offer you Lucas Ranch. We want you to come in and you can do all your editing and all these I'm not a filmmaker, but all these special things. And so like literally there, there's Leanne and Ash actually recording at Lucas, Lucas Studios, getting all this stuff done, basically where George lives. And so it just a lot of people got involved. Uh, a lot of the investors, even at Return Path, got involved in it as well. So yeah, it was a great time. I'm still very highly attached to the program. I love the program. Even had been you know bestowed the the uh, honorary title of assistant producer. Again, I am not a movie maker. Yay, that's great. But my wife and I got a chance in October to go do the red carpet event in LA when they released the film. So it was great. Wow, that's amazing. I love that project. I, I love that you could share that with our audience because I think it's just so special. And I love even what you did at the event. Hey, let's not do a keynote. Let's let's show this and, and feature something really different and special. Yeah. And just even between yeah, going out and leveraging your network to raise money for it. I, I love it. I think you have a, a really good thing going on. So I appreciate you highlighting that. Yeah. No, like I said, I, you know, if there's one thing that I would tell people really quickly before we get into our questions is that I think we can all agree that our world is far from perfect, especially in the last year, but change often doesn't come easily. And in a world with, you know, hard cost and personal tolls and whatnot, you know, that cost of change is, is hard to quantify in dollars on its own. But, you know, but when a you know, tremendous will, if you will, a capacity to create meaningful change is discovered, you know, we should all do all that we can to support that effort, especially if it's one that seeks to change something that, you know, as fundamental as our own workplaces and who we are as individuals. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I'm glad. 
Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. So now to move on to our first topic of today's discussion and to pivot to something a little bit more on the serious realm of things, privacy. This is something that's so important for any business to have knowledge about, yet it can be really difficult to know what to even prioritize because there are so many questions Mm -hmm. as a business owner around privacy concerns. Right. So let's jump into some of those burning questions that our audience has for you. The first one I want to ask, with all the new data laws popping up across the globe, how can a small business set themselves up to protect their customers and themselves? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an interesting question because, you know, it used to be as, as we were talking or in the intro is that you know, this was just all about anti-spam and the worst that would happen is if you didn't send proper email or, or you know, send the right message to the right person at the right time, you would just go to the junk box, right? That was, that was yeah. so much easier back then. And even back then, that was probably the end of the world for most marketers. But yet in today's world, right, you know, regulations... Are, are, are popping up mostly because of, of technology, right? I mean, everything that we do, I mean, you and I right now, I mean, even just a couple of years ago, having a video call was something that was very difficult and was very grainy, but yet, you know, uh, you know, technology has brought us uh, further forward than we've ever been. Uh, mobile phones, Apple watches, or sorry, this, you know, any sort of technology. And so we do know that as you are watching sort of what marketers have also realized is it's given them an opportunity to know more about their prospects by watching them do things in social media or clicking on things and whatnot. And so the issue that obviously has has been popping up, and I think most people realize this now, is that almost every day you're, uh, depending on your age, I mean, I'm, you know, I still remember the days of opening up a newspaper for our news. And now yet we get up and look at our phones and look at the news. But Every day we do this, it screams of a new data breach or a new misuse of data or you know access of data. And so what that's caused is the regulators to be rightfully so concerned about how we're using data that is personally identifiable and uh, can have you know detrimental effects if misused. And you know an example of that would be like when you get your identity stolen, your social security is used, and all of a sudden, People are opening up bank accounts and, and loans in your name, but yet it's not you and your, your credit score is ruined. Well, that same thing can kind of happen in a sense when it comes to data, because, you know, if companies grab data but don't use it in a, in a, in a proper way, it, again, could be detrimental to you. An example would be like, you know, where we had heard years ago that, you know, Target told or basically, if you will, a father found out that his daughter was pregnant. It was purely based on on, you know, opens and clicks and recommendations that they were seeing. And, and you, know, that, you know, it was a huge story that, that, you know, part of it was true, part of it was false. But, you know, that had a detriment to, to an individual. And so, yeah, so the, regulate, so the regulators are now asking, hey, we've got to do better. And so, you know, as you and I have talked, I know that you and I have had lots of webinars with our past clients before, but we've always told them that, hey, you know, with all the data that you have access to, think about the data and what you're going to do with it in the sense of, if you were collecting that data from your own grandmother, right, would you do the same thing to her, the same thing that you would do to a client, vice versa, right? And if the answer is no, then you got a problem, right? And so I think as, as clients are building their programs up, their small businesses up, they need to build in what I would what has, was coined by Dr. Ann Kavuki in, in Canada. She was a commissioner, privacy commissioner there a long time ago, but she coined a process and a term called privacy by design. That sounds complicated, but it's a real simple thing where if you remember, I know some of you folks listening to this have had ideas where 
you might be at a bar, right? That's when I tend to get my good ideas. I don't know why, but you know, I'll, hey, me too. <laughs> I'll write out a napkin, the idea, right, and, and I'll draw it out and 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 things, and go, yeah, that's 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 what what it's going to look like. But what's missing from that drawing is is privacy and security concerns or, and thoughts. And so we tell marketers now that when you're building a privacy program, ready to collect the data, ready to use that data, what privacy things have you thought of, right? As a small business. I know you want to go get customers. Is buying an email address legally allowed, depending on where you live, obviously, country-wise? Is it best practices and whatnot? So I would tell you again, guys, that you know, listening, that the first thing that you could really do is to think about the customer. You know, what you know, it, it, it's a privacy impact assessment. What you're about to do is that going to impact them negatively? Would you do this to your grandmother? And if your answer is no, then you need to go back and take a look at it and either not be as aggressive or find a way to bring privacy into that. Because folks like us who are all the product, if you will, we are trusting everybody with with the data that we give them. I trust Apple, you know, and, and other companies with my data because, well, you know, the Apple and two years ago was saying the devices that you hold belong to you and the data that's on them is your data. And this is why we do not do unlocking of phones because it's not it's not our right. You own that device, not us anymore. So yeah, I would think of it like that, basically. But yeah, d- don't be afraid of it, folks. The same way, actually, Kristen, you and I talked about this. When CanSpan came out in 2003, we all freaked out and went, oh my God, marketing is over. Yep. And yet what we found was within a year or two, it was better because it moved us from quantity over quality to quality over quantity, right? And we actually did better with our list, right? They got a little smaller, they were more targeted. And that same thing's happening, I think, here with privacy. So don't fear privacy, embrace it because it will be good for you moving forward. That's right. And protect grandma at yeah. all costs. Exactly. There That's are it. some people out there that may not consider their grandma, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. privacy by design. Thank you, your grandma. I love that term too, privacy by design. Mm-hmm. It sets intention around privacy and security when you're thinking about campaigns or or how you're going to do customer outreach. And it kind of brings up a good point of like, when should privacy become important for a business? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I feel like right now as a startup or, you know, in small business stage, a lot of times that's something that doesn't come up until it's a big issue. Right. Yeah. And then it's like, oh shit, how do I troubleshoot this? How do I fix this? Mm-hmm. So what do you suggest starting out at for customers that are like trying to dip their toe in the water in the world of privacy. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, a lot of, you know, people that are, that are building their businesses are going to go buy some sort of cloud platform. You know, we've already mentioned like, you know, Eloqua Oracle marketing automation. There's tons of these different platforms that are out there. Right. But most of these companies that are out there, HubSpot's another one that we tend to use a lot with the startups that I work with here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. A lot of them basically come with a lot of great features already built into it. In fact, I was working with another startup recently with HubSpot, brought up the fact that, hey, you guys do not have a compliant website, especially for European visitors, because you have to say, hey, we're dropping cookies. And hey, you can control these types of cookies by clicking this, right? And by going into a platform like a HubSpot or something like that, there's actually a feature in there that says, hey, you want to be GDPR compliant, which is a European regulation, which would affect you. You know, turn this feature on, and 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 we'll help walk you through how to do this. You know, most uh, most if if not all platforms are are offering this sort of stuff today. I think, but there are parts of it that they won't offer you, which would be things like, hey, you need to have a privacy policy on your website, right? 
We all hate reading them. I know that, you know, I, I'll be honest, as a privacy professional and wonk, I don't sit there and read Facebook's privacy changes every single month that they change them to collect more data from me. Um, they're boring <laughs> as heck. But, you know, simply reaching out to, you know, uh, there are several different online services actually that do this, but, uh, or a lawyer to say, hey, I need to write a policy or, hey, let me go steal one of Dennis's policies, right, you know, from, from one of the companies he's worked <laughs> yeah. with before. And let me just edit it down to, to its parody of, of, of what is, is applicable to me is a is a better move than not doing something right you know something today is confusing but doing nothing you know that's that's that that's a big concern i think so you know dipping your toes in this and spending a couple of hours thinking about it you know it's again it's the same way that uh, you know as an example like you know like when my boys were little would i let them go over to people's houses when they were little to go have play dates sure i did but i only did it with people that i knew and people that i trusted and people that you know that you know that i had a relationship with if it was somebody new, I'd be like, okay, well, so who's Joey's mom? What does she do? You know, do they have any guns in the house? You know, and that same thing happens, I think, with with visitors, right? Our clients, when they look at our websites, they want to know that they can trust us. And if they see that we've done the right things, that there's a privacy policy at the bottom, or there's a do not sell my information link, right? Uh, that's now required by California law. They're more likely to give up that data to you because they they truly believe and rightfully so that you're going to do some good things with this data. And any other thing that we would do with that would be then a, a mistrust, right? It would be a loss of trust of of you know of that yeah. client. And we have seen that. I mean, I've lots of our friends have talked about. I'm getting off of this platform. I'm done with this social platform because I'm tired of them misusing my data. You know, it, it happens. Yeah, I, I think you also get the people that misuse maybe an email that they collected from a mm -hmm. website. Maybe you never opted in. All of a sudden you're getting an email and you're like, what the heck? I visited the website, but I never opted in. Right. So can you talk about the difference between anti-spam laws sure. and privacy laws? Yeah. Well, and actually the lines are beginning to blur, I think, a little bit in that area. You know, the email laws are always about, you know, the email address, right? And, and having permission and giving choice, right? Unsubscribe or otherwise to that individual. And then comes along privacy regulations who have these really large, broad definitions of what PII is. You know, it's uh, it used to be where it would just be, you know, my data was related to my name, right? Or you, Kristen, or or email address. You know, it, it's gotten very unsexy, actually, now. We're now, you know, the platforms that we use are the data processors and, and the marketers or the data controllers, right? And and the and the customers are now the the data subjects, right? I mean, it's it's really legalistic now. But in almost every regulation that's out there, PII can refer to anything about us. One of the examples I love to give is I've got a 2009 G8 GT that I absolutely love this car. Uh, it's in a very specific red color that, that I actually uh, I spent six months trying to find this, this one color and uh, in the specific package. And I'm like one of the only people within like a 60 some odd mile radius with this car. And I kind of also live in a smaller sort of area, you know, uh, like a suburb. No, I'm not in Dallas. I'm an hour, you know, outside of Dallas. But, you know, people see me, see that car coming. They know that's mine. My neighborhood, the, the, the city knows that that's me. And that's an identifier when you think about it now. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, as you're looking at sort of how privacy laws are now addressing permission, it could be any piece of data, social security number, phone number, you know, a, a random identifier that you keep for a long period of time can be that. And so what we're seeing now is instead of more uh, email laws are coming out, they're being replaced or, you know, being changed you know, into privacy laws. 
you know, a couple of years back, you know, or actually 2019, the Federal Trade Commission held a series of hearings about privacy issues. And one of the questions we asked was, all right, what are you going to do about can spam? Right. It was created in 03, it was updated in 08. We've seen some some additional help from you guys about what to do with it. What are your plans are you know, with it? And the first answer we got back was, you know, we, we, we're thinking about taking a look at it. You know, we'll get back to you. And then now what we're hearing is yeah, we're not going to probably do anything with it, right? And where that's going to end up pushing us into now. And it has already, as an example, you know, California, uh, Virginia, and other states have now put in their own privacy laws that basically now cover the use of data, whether it's an email address or otherwise. So if you haven't gotten consent to, quote unquote, process that data or process that email address, then you're not in compliant with that regulation that's there. So like I said, I mean, there it's it's a very blurred line now, but you know, depending on the type of case and the fines, I mean, with most privacy regulations that are out there, um, you know, you have to bring a lawsuit by an attorney general or somebody in higher power. Uh, and that same thing exists in some of the email laws and other ones, it's a private right of action where the individual gets to sue over it. So, you know, people wow. will, you, will use the regulations how they want. What we just need now here in the U.S. is a, standard federal privacy law and not 50 different state laws that marketers have to jump through. Yeah. I want to talk about that specifically before we we pivot over to security because the, the EU, they have their own data protection law. Mm-hmm. GDPR really covers that. Um, you mentioned can spam. You mentioned a law just in California. Yeah. So in the U.S. specifically, it's really hard. We don't have well, I guess if, if you're in the EU, you have to worry about that location there. Yeah. But if you're just a U.S. business right now, there's a lot of gray areas. Yeah. I feel like people kind of push the limits and see what they can get away with. But <laughs> when when is the U.S. going to enact data regulation that could have similar impact to GDPR? Uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. Um, so we've always had at some level federal privacy legislation, but not in the sense of like an overarching umbrella GDPR. We love to, as some of you who are very frustrated with our Congress right now at times, um, they like to only react uh, when there's a need or it makes them look good, whatever you want to call it. So we tend to sectorialize our regulations, right? We have HIPAA, healthcare. We have the Cable Act, the Telecommunications Act, the Graham Leach Bliley Act, that's financial. There are tons of different privacy regulations, but they're sectorialized. And every year there's I don't know, five, 10, most recent years, 15 to 20 new bills that are filed in Congress to try to address this. And every time it gets killed, gets killed by the lobbyist, gets killed in the House for whatever reason, and never goes any further. And it's very frustrating that, you know, that the congressional members cannot agree on how to protect us. I'll be honest, I think a part of it is they're also worried about what's going to happen with the data that they collect to be able to go off and campaign with you the same way that they put in an exception right. and can spam, right? But that's that's a whole other discussion that would need a couple of drinks. But, but you know, every year we do have that. Now, actually, this year, we actually have a couple that are leading right now that have really gotten a little bit of, of, of support from both sides, if you will. Um, where we think we might see something in the next year or two, you know, with, with, with the new president coming in with the new agenda, with the pandemic and other sort of more important things, I think that's happening still in, in my eyes, it, it won't happen this year, but we're starting to, we're starting to get that conversation going. What's also forcing the hand as well is the European union itself, where for those who don't realize, but if you're collecting data on European uh, or anybody in Europe, so if Kristen goes to Europe just to visit, GDPR applies to her, right? It, you actually have those rights, believe it or not. 
you, you don't have to be a citizen. But if you're collecting data on individuals in the union, anywhere in the union, and you want to bring it here to the U.S. and process it here, it's actually illegal to do that. Wow. Yeah. You know, the EU does not recognize the U.S. and rightfully so as having adequate privacy laws. But what they have done, along with the Department of Commerce a long time ago, was they launched something called Safe Harbor, which was then invalidated by the EU. Then came Privacy Shield, which was then once again invalidated by the EU courts again, mostly because the U.S. hadn't done enough to protect that data from intrusion from, you know, national, uh, you know, intelligence agencies, if you will. And currently we're actually going through that fight right now. And But those were two mechanisms, model clause, sorry, uh, the, the safe harbor and privacy shield were the two mechanisms or one of the, well, several mechanisms that you could use to move that data over and say, hey, I'm processing that data here in the U.S., but I am adhering to the laws of Europe or GDPR. Well, when those got invalidated, the other mechanism that we used over at Return Path was something called model clauses or you know, model contracts. And it was a contract between you and the provider to say, again, what I'm going to be doing with this data it is in line with what the regulations are in, in Europe. And now, because of those pressures of those you know, safe harbor and privacy shield being invalidated, there has been discussions as to whether or not model clauses may be invalidated as well. It, it, it's put us on, on notice, if you will, here in the U.S., that this will make it harder for us to do business and to move data back and forth between the European Union and the U.S. if we don't do something more. Yeah. And wow. I remember, you know, you, you know, Kristen, you and I had worked on this, you know, especially in the marketing side of things at, at Return Path. But, you know, Return Path had, had gone through at the time and we had worked with uh, with with the uh, uh, Data Marketing Association and Harvard, the Harvard uh, Business School. And we did that data driven economy paper. Um, and it showed really just how much our economies rely on the data that we move back and forth. The, the amount of jobs, you know, I think right now, I think 11 or 12% of the U.S. gross domestic product right now, that's purely based on data. You know, uh, it, it creates millions of jobs every single year for us here. And so we need to, we have to figure this out soon. We have to keep the global effort moving. Privacy will always be, though. I, we had a conversation yesterday with a couple of folks. Privacy will come before economy. It will become, you know, come before money. But as we all know, between the successes of companies like Eloqua and Return Path, right, that we, we could figure out how to put privacy first, but still be able to use the data and, and make money from doing that. Yeah, I think that's one thing Return Path always did very well was protecting subscriber data, anonymizing things, just always putting that first. And it built trust from the client side, but even from the employee side, right? You knew that they were taking care of people. And I think that's really important. Like you said, you're, you need to instill trust in your brand with your customers, with your team, and you need to have a plan of action to yep. properly yep. secure data. That's true. So let's jump to another important topic for business owners, security. <laughs> How does a small business protect themselves and their clients from data theft? So are there internal or mm -hmm. external checks that they can do to protect themselves? Yeah, I think one of the easiest things to, to begin with is is password. I'll, password, password, passwords, passwords to begin with. And I say that because it's it's one of the more easiest things I think that people forget. I mean, small businesses are just like any other individual that may not think about having a secure or hard to guess password, right? You know, even, you know, uh, some people know from a story that we did last year, actually, with one of the security reporters, uh, Brian Krebs. One of my sons had his Xbox account hacked last year because he had an easy password and also didn't have two-factor authentication turned on. And so he lost that Xbox account. Microsoft and some friends of mine stepped in and helped us recover the data and, and, and created a new account for him. And he was able to 
successfully continue to play as Xbox, but that's a whole other discussion again. <laughs> wow, but, friends at Microsoft. We I need know, to right? hook it up. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't Bill Gates. I won't go that far. No, but you know, I think people overlook those sorts of things, right? And then in today's environment, I think for most that might use banking or any other platform today, yeah, it's gotten very complicated because they they want you to use strong passwords. But even you know the most simplistic things of having a point of sales, you know, register, you know, in, in your business that's connected to the internet, you don't have a strong password on that, right? You know, can a hacker come in off the internet and get into it and steal money? virtually, I should say, sure, they can do that. You know, so I would, I, I would start off you know, with passwords and make sure that you guys turn on two-factor authentication and not just the two-factor that sends a six-digit code to your text. Uh, we already know that the phone systems that are out there, the ones that we still rely on, even though we're on a digital mobile phone, the back end of that still relies on 35-year-old telephone technology. And we know that hackers actually intercept text messages all the time. And so what you'll find is, you know, when they're hacking your accounts, they'll get in between you and your text provider and they'll get those codes and they'll break into your accounts. You know, I remember like Kristen, like this probably drove you nuts, but, you know, one of the things that we required at RetournPath was, you know, you have to use a two-factor authentication app like Google Authentication or LastPass or something, right? And it made us a much stronger company because you had to go to your phone and, and, and wait for the six-digit code to change every 30 seconds, but you would use that as your two-factor. I, I get that people don't like doing that, but it's an extra 10 seconds out of your life not to lose your entire livelihood by a hacker. So as a small business, look at just simply look at that to start off with and realize that I need to secure all my platforms that have access to all my information, whether it's my inventory, whether that's my bank accounts and whatnot. And that at least should put you on the right foot. Yeah, that's great advice. And I definitely recommend LastPass. Get your passwords out of that Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> Put them in a secure device. Right. Step one. Yeah. Uh, that's about as much as I know about privacy and security, but <laughs> that's why we have Dennis here. <laughs> why should marketers care about protecting their, their website domain and their email domain, right, from phishing attacks or other security threats? And how do they go about doing that? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question actually. So, you know, if we think about branding, right? Our, our logos, the colors that we have that we all copyright and trademark and whatnot, that's all a part of our business. That's how people recognize who we are, you know, in the business world. So, I know as an example, like I was doing some stuff earlier with 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 American Airlines and and uh, I, I I got an email from them and as soon as I see that, like I'm like, "Oh, okay, that must be some new vacation offer because Hopefully this summer we're going on vacation after COVID here, but I was excited to see that. But, you know, because the colors and the AA.com and the domain, that's important, right? So, you know, for me, when I look at protecting your domain, you're protecting your namesake, right? Uh, you know, it's the way that, let's just say as an example, if you had your identity stolen, your social security number stolen, you were required to change your first and last name as well man, what a confusing thing that would be, right? And who, I don't want to change my name to Bob or Roger. I, I like Dennis. It was, it was my God-given name, so I want to keep that one. And that same thing exists, if you will, when people misuse your name, right? We've always heard where, you know, in movies and even in real life where somebody acts like they're you, right? That, that upsets you. And in the, I, in, in, in the area of, of digital, right, when hackers are able to impersonate you Right. What they're doing is they're basically piggybacking off of your goodwill and your good brand and your good name. The hard work that you've put into that, they're piggybacking off of that. And we see this every day with phishing emails, right? We all get that one phishing email that says, hey, 
You know, you need to log in, click here to log into the, to your Wells Fargo account, right? And it's oh, misspelled yeah. or, you know, um, or sometimes they're actually able to use Wells Fargo itself. Um, you know, you want to you, you prevent that because you don't want people to mistrust emails that are and the actual emails, the real emails, the important emails that are coming from your from you. And so you want to protect those as, as best as possible. And so what you do in order to protect them is a couple of things. One is to basically start doing what we call, um, you know, um, authentication. And authentication would be where you put out a couple of, of, of records, one's called SPF or Sender Policy Framework, that says emails from this domain will only come from these IP addresses, which are usually your email systems, whether they're internally or external, if you're housing them outside or in the cloud. Um, and if you see an email not come from any one of these IP addresses and it says it's coming from my domain, then trash it, junk it, do whatever you want with it to, to some certain extent. But if it does come from these IP addresses that I've authorized and I'm now telling the world that this is the only place emails come from, then please accept it, right? It's, it, it, you know, it's me. The other way is through another thing called DKIM. And DKIM is, a, in essence, it's a cryptography, uh, not encryption as encrypting your email or content, but it's a, it's a digital signature that comes in the back of an email. You don't really see it. Uh, it's hidden. But again, what it does is it says, okay, this is how I sign my emails that are going out. The same way that, you know, for a lot of us in the 70s, 80s, and maybe even part of the early 90s, you still, believe it or not, your banks would actually compare your signature to the signature card that you had on file, right? That's kind of what's happening here in a sense is that they're comparing that a known signature that's supposed to come in these emails from a specific domain is yours. And if it's on any other signature or otherwise, it's not you. And again, if it's not you, throw it away or junk that email. That's that's the authentication part. The other part is an authorization, right? Which is basically as getting into something called a DMARC, right? And DMARC is also another part that says it takes DKIM and SPF and says, okay, I've made these two statements about where my emails come from. And here's now how I want you to actually handle, like I'm authorizing you to handle these emails in a certain fashion. And again, you know, if they fail any one of these, then either only accept a percentage of the email and fail the other or accept all of it or reject all of it, right? And most of the platforms that marketers are using, you know, ESP-wise already offer this as a feature, as a function, yeah. like the GDPR thing we were talking about. And if you typically just go in and, 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 and turn this on or, or look up in the help section, they'll tell you how to turn this on and how to make it work for you. But it's a very important thing uh, for you to protect your domain from being misused by anybody. Because, yeah, if they're sending out phishing emails, you, you don't want those getting out to people. You want that to be dropped on the floor. Right. I love that because it, it does actually put put everything back in your hands. It gives you a little bit of control mm -hmm. and you can dictate mm -hmm. what to do if somebody does fish your email account. So yeah. uh, we know yeah. that phishing is a concern to small business, but do we need training like big companies? I know at Return Pass, we used to go through regular trainings. They would send yeah. out you know, fake phishing emails to kind of test you, you know, you never want, sorry, sorry. you never wanted to fail those, man. That made you feel like crap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, but it was yeah. great. It really actually helped me, you know, in real life too, right? My personal Gmail, I see stuff come through all the time. And now I understand how to identify if it's real or not, you know, to look up on the sure. back end. Okay. Do they have, hmm. you know, DKIM in there? It, 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 what's, right. what's it showing me? But yeah, not everybody knows that. So is there a regular training that small businesses can do? 
Yeah, believe it or not, I mean, there's several different platforms, you know, that are out there. I mean, I, uh, you know, we we moved and changed different platforms that return path over time, but there are ones that that you can offer training. Uh, when I look at training, and you know, as you're talking about the fishing training, you know, I'll, I'll take it a, a step further, if you will, that you know, as your business is going, like if you're a one two person mom and pop bakery, you're probably not going to go out and want to buy a training solution for you and, and and your and your husband or or wife or spouse or whatever, right? It doesn't. It's you probably don't have time for it, but as a small business, right? When you're hitting, you know, 25 to 50 sort of, you know, employees in there, it's probably a good thing to start thinking about security and privacy training because really what you've also not you've done is you've hired these people for their expertise and a lot of things, but you've also handed them the keys to the kingdom as data stewards, right? Um, you know, you and I had this conversation all the time where, you know, you were a part of a team, it was, it was a privacy council at Return Path, and it was you and somebody from sales and somebody from, from HR, and, and, and we would have these regular quarterly meetings. We would talk about what was happening privacy-wise and, and things that we had to be concerned about. And then your job to be a part of that council was to spend about 10 or 20% of your business as usual thinking about privacy. And so when you would go off and say, hey, Dennis, I want to I want to create this you know, email campaign because we want to invite all of our clients to, to the L.A. Dodgers you know, stadium for, for a game. What are the things I need to think about around you know, consent and whatnot? Right. You know, you are now a data steward because you're the one collecting that data and you're the one in charge of that data. And so that same thing, I mean, you're not a privacy professional, but I rely on you to know that your job is to help protect that data. Yeah. And so with small businesses with 25 or 50 people, they need to be doing the same thing too. So there are tons of platforms that are out there today that offer privacy training, uh, security training, and they last anywhere between 15 minutes to 30 minutes. I swear it's not like six or eight hours of like a defensive driving course. You can buy ones that are bigger than that and go that long if you want. Um, but you can easily get into buying those. And then some of those actually will offer those phishing test programs where they will teach you what phishing is about. They'll teach you how to identify it. And that's sort of what you were mentioning is that you would go and watch a, I don't know, 10, 15 minute video about phishing and it would tell you and then it would test you and go, you know, here's a you know, e- uh, Bobby got an email and it looks like this. Is this phishing or not? And you would hover around the email to see if the URL uh, was, you know, a bank or otherwise. And then you would make your choices. You know, you can spend, you know, just a few dollars on some of those for your employees and bring them up to speed to go, all right, it's your job as well to protect the assets. Because if the company goes down, guess what? You're out of a job as well. So it behooves you to train everybody as much as possible and to have everyone up to speed as to what they need to be doing. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And and that's something I need to do with my team. Now I'm like, okay, when are we going to schedule our, <laughs> our training? Uh, or maybe I'll, I'll set up a fake email account and, and try to get people, but. Well, you know what, well, I'll, I'll just come to Colorado since I haven't seen you in so long and we'll just, we'll make a day of it. Okay. That's right. As long <laughs> as there's beer, we're good. Yes, and we're good that, to go. That'll motivate Amen. us. <laughs> Now, you did mention fangirling over Apple, and uh, I'm curious what you think about the new iOS update, because I know it's driving some marketers insane, but from a user experience, I like that they're kind of eliminating that third-party pixel tracking. So I think you have to opt in, right? Uh, Yeah, so the way that it's working is each app, after you've loaded it on, as each app makes its new request to do tracking, that app is then going to ask you specifically, do you want to allow or do you not want to be tracked is what it, I think it says or something to that, to that effect. But you have to do that for every single app as you need. What I would tell you to do, actually, if you're that concerned about it, 
is that if you go into your phone, go to settings, and then within settings, if you go down, oh, I'd say down to the third section, the bottom of the third section, it says privacy. You click in the privacy, and then when you do that, there's an icon, it's orange, and it says tracking. And when you click tracking, it says it's turned on automatically, which says allow apps to request tracking. I turn that off, so none of the apps will now be able to track me from here on out. So all of those social media platforms, <coughs> Facebook, um, you know, they, you know, they can't see as, as much. I'm not saying that they won't be able to still get us in other ways, and they probably will. But you know, that's what I've gone and done. But yeah, I'm excited about it. To be completely honest, I for years I've actually been using blocking technologies in my browsers and on my phones. You know, and I'm not saying that I completely blinded Facebook out, but at one point I think they. They thought I was a 65-year-old grandmother because of the data that was being given back and the, the, and the advertising and stuff that I was getting was a little bit weird. But uh, Nice yeah. work. Wow, that's pretty good to be able to, to block them out because, yeah, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a love-hate relationship, right? I'm a marketer, so I'm like, ooh, you know, that really impacts some of the Facebook remarketing and this and that. But from mm-hmm. a privacy standpoint and an end user who doesn't want yeah. my PII shared, Right. I love it. So good right. job, Apple. Yeah, they've done good. They've done good. Well, I mean, you know, but let's let's face it. I mean, Apple is doing something good here. But, you know, now you're in their walled garden, right? You know that with all the data we've uploaded, the pictures and everything else, that, you know, I don't think that they're outright selling all this data, obviously, but they're using that data as well to better figure out how to, how to target you and build bigger and more expensive products, probably. Um, so, you know, it's not all completely, you know, just for you, right? That's <laughs> but true. they're going to put you in a, you know, they're going to bring you into their garden. There's always a catch. There's always, There's a, always catch. a catch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about live events because, you know, I love events and, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of the, the global pandemic or, well, shoot, we're mm-hmm. still in it. You know, we're really still in it. Yeah. But I want to talk about the future of live events. So what privacy or other concerns will businesses face by asking employees or even event attendees for proof of vaccination? Yeah, that's that's an ongoing debate, depending on politics and privacy regulations and just and, and just people in general, you know, you know, these days. You know, I don't know really like when you sort of take a look at like, you know, HIPAA as, as an example, as healthcare regulations, right? HIPAA is all about controlling or helping, I should say, that trust relationship between you and your doctor, right? When you go see your doctor, hopefully everybody listening to this, trust your, your doctor to give them the most intimate details about your life. Because unlike marketing, like if you don't give that to marketers, right, things will be just fine, right? You may get some ir- irrelevant ads maybe, but if you don't give up the right information to your doctor so they can treat you, they could kill you, right, when you think about that. And so when I talk to people about HIPAA, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is what helps also, you know, maintain that. That's a, another part of that trust relationship that you have between your doctor. But when it comes to, like, the health vaccination cards, it's not really saying or it's not really, you know, in terms of coverage, or we can debate this all day long, and I, won't, I don't want to get into it that much yet. But you know, there have been debates as to whether or not HIPAA is a part of that coverage or not. Well, it's not really talking about a diagnosis or anything. It's just saying that you've had your vaccinations the same way that you have a flu vaccination. Or as another example, for me personally, like as, as you know, I travel, I was traveling a lot. And when I will go down to you know, like Brazil, I got to make sure my yellow vaccination or yellow fever vaccination is up to date because it's a requirement to enter the countries that, that, that are down there. But yet, in my, so in my passport, there's a little piece of paper that says I've had a yellow vaccination or yellow fever vaccination. And for me, I'm fine with that, right? I've been showing ID forever. 
from the time that I started driving at 16 to the time I was able to drink legally at 21 <laughs> um, to, uh, you know, many, many other things that I needed to get done, right? I, you've always had to show some proof of, about something about yourself. And for me personally, I don't really find any sort of issues with having to show proof of vaccination uh, with COVID, I should say, especially if it's going to get me into places like Europe, uh, you know, on, you know, you know, into, you know, uh, places where, you know, as an example, not to bring up the whole face mask issue, but, you know, businesses are allowed to say whether or not you're allowed to come in their store with or without a face mask, no shoes, no shirt, no service been there forever. Right. So their business, they can do what they want. So, you know, if businesses want to do that, they can, they obviously have to balance back and forth what that's going to do for people coming into their businesses, you know, and like, like you and I were talking before, we're, we're both thinking about having a nice evening out, you know, at a, at an outdoor facility somewhere, you know, if they were to ask me to prove my vaccination and I didn't want to show it, then I'm not going to go have a good time that night. And that's their right in their business. Um, but you know, there's been on the political battle of this, you know, our, 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 the governor here in Texas has, has made it illegal, if you will, for, for government agencies and other groups like that to require a vaccination or passport, if you will, an app, right. To, to show vaccination, you know, he can't prevent businesses from, from doing that themselves to say, Hey, you got to show a vaccination card coming into my bakery or whatnot. But, you know, this has been sort of going back and forth again, I'm okay with it. But I think people also have to sort of balance this out and say, okay, if I'm going to, as a small business, say, in order to even come in and talk to me as Kristen in my business here in in Denver, you have to have a a mask and a vaccination card on you. You know, if they say, forget you and they leave, then, well, a little less revenue on on your part, but that's just the gamble that you have to take. Yeah, it is a gamble. I mean, you you don't want to overstep and to your point, you don't want to lose revenue. And so it's a fine balance. And I think a lot of employers are struggling right now with what they can or cannot ask in that area. You know, I think businesses have to think about that and go, all right, again, what am I going to do about this? Or what can I offer to my employees to say, you know what, I will not require vaccination cards from everybody. But if you feel unsafe about coming into the office, that's fine. You can continue to work from home, right? But uh, you know, as a, as an example, for you and I, Return Path, like one of our benefits was transportation dollars that we would get if we were like in New York, like at the office when you and I would, would go visit New York, we could use those dollars to to ride the subway back and forth and use a cab. You could say, you know, I just won't be giving you that $60 in benefits to, to transport back and forth on the toll roads or in mileage just because you're not coming here. And that's fine. You know, you just have to kind of balance that out. But I think businesses, and we're seeing this with Google and Salesforce, they've figured it out. In fact, Google just said this week they saved a billion dollars in remote access or having people remote uh, work remote. That could continue a little bit longer for them because that's savings for them, right? And I think we've all figured out how to work better remote, right, over time. Some people do it well. I've done it well for 15 plus years. Others, it was their first year and they they struggled with being here, you know, or you know, being at homes and whatnot. So you know, it's a give and take, and I think people should have a respectful conversation with their employees about it to determine what's best for everybody. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought the the remote workplace situation up because actually that that springs another question into my head of mm-hmm. how if your team goes all remote and maybe you don't have a VPN or or something like that set up, what what do you do as a small business? You're you're now working remote. You're bringing on more employees. What does that look like? Do do you need to go in and look at a VPN solution, or how do you keep things secure when people are on various, you know, wireless connections and whatnot? Right. 
You know, I you know, VPNs are a nice thing. You know, they they help protect that content that's you know traversing the wire, if you will, from being snooped on. The thing is, though, is that when you're home on your own networks, you're you're on your network, right? It's not a public network where, well, unless you have it wide open to your neighbors, I, I doubt you do. But you know, it's your private network, and so the data that's being traversed across it is pretty much secure. Okay. Right? One because the laptops, the browsers, like if you use Gmail. You know, you see HTTPS, that's encrypted. The, if you're using email, you know, or, or, you know, if you're using an email client, um, then same thing. It's actually encrypting the email as it crosses through here. So there's not really a need to have a VPN. Now, you're in an airport or a hotel network, right? Or, I don't know, Starbucks, completely different situation, right? You're sharing a very vast public network that people can then snoop on your traffic. And yes, that's when you want to start using VPN technology a little bit more, I, I think. And that's some, some of the things that we required, even you know, some of the companies before, was that you, know, you don't have to use a VPN at home. In fact, I think we set it up you know, where, where you, know, you basically had the option, obviously, but we would remind you through training as well that if you're on a public network, please use the VPN as much as possible. But for small businesses, the thing is, is that you know, a VPN is only going to help you with also connecting to a secure system. Most small businesses don't have some big server farm sitting behind it with a bunch of data behind it. All of their stuff is in the cloud. You know, we'll use QuickBooks as, as an example. You're probably using QuickBooks for your finances and whatnot. Well, again, when you're logging into QuickBooks and you're doing it through the web browser, obviously, there it is, HTTPS. It's already encrypting the traffic between your laptop and there. But again, if you were sitting in Starbucks, you would still be protected, I think, pretty well but I, I would probably add that option for a VPN just in case. But you don't have to spend a whole lot of uh, money on it. In fact, one of the more favorite ones that I like to use, which is really a, uh, a, a simple one and, and, and a good priced one, is uh, something called Tunnel Bear. Uh, and Tunnel Bear um, is just a couple of dollars, actually, uh, for, for anybody. Like Actually, they have a free one, actually, that you can try. And you can send a certain amount of traffic over for free browsing. And then after that, it's only $3 a month if you really want to have it. And it's kind of cool because you can also tell it, and I'm going to get geeky here for a second, but you can say, I want it to pass my traffic through the U.S., or better yet, I want the traffic to first go to Germany and then come back over to where it needs to go. You can actually tell it where you want it to be. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you're full of fun facts, and I'm really excited because we're going to do hacks and facts lightning round, Okay. <laughs> and we're going to do this to wrap it up. I've got five questions. You don't know okay. what they are. I did not give you a pre-read, <laughs> so you're going to have about 10 seconds per question, yeah. um, and we're going to start with this. What is your favorite adult beverage? Oh, I am a big uh, whiskey and bourbon fan, actually, these days. Uh, you know, started off like a lot of people with beers. I do drink beers quite a bit, especially darker and, you know, you know, beers from other countries and whatnot. But when I'm not, I like to have a good Sazerac or an old fashioned. Hell yes. I love <laughs> bourbon. That's the yeah. West Virginia in me. I know, right? <laughs> All right. What's the most common stupid password that people use? Oh, gosh. I mean, I mean, the, the more obvious ones are the change me ones or the password one, two, three ones, right? I just, I'm still shocked that people still use those. And most platforms will actually now reject those. But yeah, we still see change me one, two, three exclamation mark. And I'm like, really? <laughs> it's the exclamation mark. Nobody yeah. would ever guess that. It's like the first thing on the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's the most embarrassing privacy issue that you've had to deal with? Is it, is it my privacy issue or somebody else's privacy Anybody, issue? Anything. 
Oh gosh, uh, Lordy, uh, I mean, it, it probably like having a friend call and say, "Oh my gosh, I've just left my camera on, and I didn't realize that I was that the camera was on, and I was getting dressed in the background. What do I do? Do they have my data? I think they were recording it on Zoom. <laughs> what do oh, I do? No. Yeah, that, oh. that's happened a couple of times this year, and I've actually unfortunately been on some of those Zoom calls and saw it happen. Wow, man, yeah. my Zoom calls aren't that entertaining. <laughs> you just step it up. All right, if you could be the infamous prince of Nigeria and you had millions of dollars that you raised from your phishing scam, what right. would you spend it on? What would I spend it on? Uh, probably, gosh, travel. Like I, like I would want like my own sort of you know airplane, helicopter sort of thing. I know people would want to do boats and whatnot, but you know, you, you know me, like we've traveled the world a couple of times. Like I love travel and that's what I want to go do more of is just travel and see the rest of the world. Cultural people, food that's my biggest thing that's what oh, i yeah. do with it yeah food food that's the food. biggest thing. oh yeah oh yeah. yeah do you remember your first email address uh yeah and it was actually through a platform i'm going to age myself here to be honest back way back when it was something called yak chat and you basically rented this computer terminal uh that had a foldable i say foldable but a fold-up keyboard and it was a big screen and you literally carried this thing with you around to house or to, you know, wherever you were. And, you know, they assigned you what at that time was, was you know, was an email address. My last email address, the, the oldest one that I have is, is probably one from now with the domains that I own right now. I don't know if I, if I want to give it out because I don't want more marketing. But, um, yeah, I still remember all those. I've got 35 gigs of, of email for, from 25 years. still archived, actually. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I think for the opening of this podcast episode, we're going to have the dial-up modem sound. Yes, you should. <laughs> and that'll should. intro Actually, you. Well, I just put it on Facebook, right? We were looking at that two weeks ago, right? Look at my Facebook page. You'll see it there. I uh, I brought that back the other day. Oh, I, I'm going to have to grab an audio clip from that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dennis. In closing, follow us on Apple or Spotify or go to marketlikeabadass.media for the latest episodes of Market Like a Badass.